Um, let us begin with another prayer. Uh, Cramner, who we speak a lot of around here, Thomas Cramner, the 16th century reformer and the, the English reformer, the architect of the, uh, the Books of Common Prayer. Um, he wrote two prayers for Christmas Day, um, uh, the Feast of the Nativity of Our Lord, as the fancy title goes. And here's the second one. O God, who makest us glad with the yearly remembrance of the birth of thine only Son, Jesus Christ, grant that as we joyfully receive him for our Redeemer, so we may with sure confidence behold him when he shall come to be our judge, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, one God, world without end. Amen. So for the second time this morning, uh, let's hear the story, the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, and it's really in two parts, um, uh, sort of slow down so you can catch this. The birth itself, I'm always struck by how anticlimactic it is. I mean, it really is an anticlimax. In some ways, not unlike, um, here's an odd phrase to tie to Christmas, not unlike the defeat of Satan at the end, uh, or very, very near the end of the book of Revelation. Once it's all said and done, uh, Satan is felled by a word. It's just like, okay, and then Satan's like bound and thrown into the abyss and he never comes out again. And that's all it is. I mean, it's not like this great struggle. There's not all this. It's just done. And in some ways, it's just done. Here in what's called the interregnum, or the period in between the, the Malachi, the last prophet, and when Matthew finally you know, springs on the scene, uh, uh, in those 400-something years, he comes, and this is certainly one of the themes this morning, he comes as the silent word that pleads, the silent word, the paradox, a lot of paradox today and in the Christmas story. All this, I forgot to give the preface, all this, what's, what's the point of these classes this week and last week? It's, it's, it's very selfish. I just like to sort of get in, it puts me right in front of the, uh, the Christmas hymns, the Christmas carols, some Christmas stories, some Christmas literature that I love a lot. It gives me, if I, don't, if I don't teach on it, if I don't do a class on it, I won't read it. I won't engage my heart with it. And so I just like to do that These uh, either a week or two weeks beforehand, a lot of which we'll hear either like this morning or this afternoon, either at three or five, one of the lessons and carol services, um, and then certainly on Saturday at one of our Christmas Eve services. Uh, today we're moving towards Hark, the herald angels sing as the great miracle of Christmas. Uh, and that's our recessional hymn. That's the last hymn that we sing uh, as we leave the church um, for the Christmas Eve services. So all of it, we're kind of wrapping into all that. That's the reason we do all this. And so the birth of Jesus Christ, the story uh, out of Luke, in some ways is very anticlimactic. It's just a girl and her husband uh, time comes, she gives birth, it's in a, a barn, and then he shall call his name Jesus. And that's kind of all it gives. And then there's a second part, the one that actually gets a little bit more airplay. There's no angels there. There's no um, Handel's Messiah isn't playing in the background when Jesus is born. It's just birth and a very uneventful birth, as in David, um, you know, one who's given birth to how many thousands? Millions and billions and billions of births in the history of the world. And this one was indistinguishable from any other. But then, part two, a uh, couple of miles away, in the middle of nowhere, with the forgotten profession of its day, shepherding. 
so common as also to be, uh, well, disdained. You know, look down your nose and say, oh, shepherds. And that's where the angels appear. And so just put some pregnancy, pun intended, in the story of the birth of Christmas. And the punchline today is, uh, um, behold, born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So all that to get to the word. Um, Gospel according to St. Luke, um, second chapter, the first verse. And in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was at the house and lineage of David. uh, I'm sorry, because he was at the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, almost happenstantially, accidentally, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And then verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. And at the end of the eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. The word of the Lord. So the ordinariness of all of this, go ahead and flip a slide. Um, The ordinariness of all of this, um, it was a birth so like any one of the billions of births that have happened throughout history in the past, in the present, and in the days until Christ comes back, however many births there were, what was remarkable about the entrance of Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one of God, into this world was his unremarkableness. He simply came, happenstantially, nearly accidentally, but in a very particular time and place. Now, it reads beautifully. In the days when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and it came time for all to be enrolled, What is all that verbiage for? It's a marker. They didn't have iPads and calendars. They didn't have timestamps and all that. And so 
It's an historical, it's a way to mark this in history, corroborated up and down and sideways by Christian and non-Christian sources alike, that something very near this happened. All of the, 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 the data lines up to this point. Yep, this is when Quirinius was there, and this is when uh, Herod was there, and there was something like a massacre of the innocents <clears throat> right about the same time. And historically, this is all very strong. But all that's to say, the ordinariness that it comes through, of how unremarkable it was, and then how remarkable it was to those who are unremarkable, where now, in that same region, there were shepherds out in the field doing what shepherds do, and there the glory of the Lord was revealed. And there the glory of the Lord and the multitude of the heavenly host started singing glory to God in the highest. Divinity has become man. The ineffable has become effable. <laughs> the abstract has become concrete. That which is infinite has become finite, so finite as to be lowered into the womb of a virgin, a zygote. As one author once said it that I've never forgotten, that at the very moment of conception, it was simply two cells. I mean, how, how reductionistic can you get to go from divinity, deity, whatever that means, majesty, uh, to something that basic, that small? And so all that's the wonder that's here. And this... Um, painting by a, a Spanish painter named Zuraban um, from the mid-17th century, which is normally associated with, uh, with something closer to Good Friday, uh, uh, titled Agnus Dei, which means Lamb of God. It's in Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. I just wanted to play with this a little bit, because in the same way, uh, the very ordinary sacrifice, which was repeated year in and year out, year in and year out, year in and year out, year in and year out for centuries, where uh, not only on Yom Kippur, the great day of atonement, but, but also at smaller times in the temple, where hundreds and hundreds and thousands and thousands of animals, primarily lambs, some bulls, some birds, were sacrificed. Uh, in remembrance of Yahweh's covenant. Um, all that plays out where um, Christ assumes the role, obviously, of the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, the one Lamb, which now uh, would be the perfect, sufficient oblation satisfaction for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world, so that those repetitions could now cease. And so again, the God breaking through the ordinary, and this picture uh, I was reminded of when we sang a few um, weeks ago uh, in our lesson. We do a lot of lessons and carols around here. And the lessons and carols that was Advent 1, like three weeks ago here, one of the texts that Fred picked, Fred Teardo picked, um, by a, a, a poem by William Blake, a children's poem, supposedly, but not quite like a child. Um, Christmas always involves death. It simply does. Um, Christ was born to die. Um, Athanasius, one of the great saints, even put it so bluntly as this, therefore he, Christ, put on a body so that in the body he might find death and blot it out. Christ was born as a lamb in order to become the lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And, it, and I think William Blake picks this up in this uh, uh, little ditty, because it's a children's ditty, basically, um, but with a lot of depth to it. 
And we sang this a few weeks ago. The choir sang this for us. And I put this up there because it's about a little lamb, but thinking now in all the wordplay, the entendre, uh, about the little lamb who is named by Christ, the little lamb whom Christ becomes on our behalf. So here's the words. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost that know? Dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such tender voice, making all the veils rejoice. Little lamb, who made thee? Dost thou know who made thee? We see this lamb with his feet bound, obviously waiting for the sacrifice and the pathos, the suffering, the sadness, the heaviness of it all comes on. Uh, for this little lamb is to be killed. This little lamb is to die. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he plays. He calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. The foreshadowing here is very powerful. I, a child, and thou a lamb, we are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. So from that, with the sense of death and heaviness in the air, I hope, um, again, something I've read several times in these classes over the years, but Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorites, and we're getting to Truman Capote, by the way, Gretchen. Um, uh, Flannery O'Connor, one of my favorites, really capturing some of the, uh, uh, the strange ordinariness of Christmas, um, the, the heaviness of death, the hardness of the midwinter bleakness, of, of uh, the hardness of the stony heart. Um, that's the whole reason for Christmas, as we talked about last week. You know, Jesus is not the reason for the season. Um, you are the reason for the season, and I am the reason for the season. Uh, we, in our sins, are, separate, are being separated from God, is the reason that this lamb was bound uh, hoof to hoof and with his throat slit or hung on the cross for us. Um, uh, Flannery O'Connor got all that in spades. And as she would say, people would ask her, why do you write the way you do? It's so ugly. <laughs> grotesque is the word they usually use. So grotesque. She said, because you have to, to the deaf, you have to yell. <laughs> and to those who don't see well, you have to write in large capital letters. And so she would stretch reality and go back to her roots um, uh, and paint really backwards uh, people in order to show human need. And so there's this place in the story, um, one of her only novels, one of her two novels, The Violent Shall Bear It Away. There's a, uh, we'll call him an agnostic or a hard atheist, and he's, um, anyway, I don't want to set all that up. He, the story finds him peering in a window, uh, and there's a Pentecostal revival going on. Um, remember, he's got a hardness of stone. Think of him as the bleak midwinter. We're going to listen to that again here in a little bit. His name is Raber. And so Raber is peering in with a really stony heart. And there's an 11-year-old, 12-year-old girl who is the child preacher standing in sort of the sawdust uh, or maybe a makeshift kind of area in a shop window or something like that. Think like 1930, you know, rural Alabama or something like that. And so it's a child preacher and he's peering in through the window, and they engage each other, and it says this. The little girl hobbled into the spotlight. Raber cringed. Simply by the sight of her, he could tell that she was not a fraud, 
that she was only exploited. She was 11 or 12 with a small, delicate face and a head of black hair that looked too thick and heavy for a frail child to support. She held up her arms over her head for a moment. I want to tell you... Oh, this is the child speaking. I want to tell you people the story of the world, she said with a high, loud child's voice. I want to tell you why Jesus came and what happened to him. I want to tell you how he'll come again. I want to tell you to be ready. Most of all, she said, I want to tell you to be ready so that on that last day you'll rise in the glory of the Lord. Listen, you people, she said and flung her arms wide. God told the world he was going to send a king and the world waited. The world thought a golden fleece will do for his bed. Silver and gold and peacock tails, a thousand suns and a peacock's tail will do for his crib. His mother will ride on a four-horned white beast and use a sunset for a cape. She'll trail it behind over the ground and let the world pull it to pieces, a new one every evening. So that's the contrast between the world's expectation and what happened. And the world said, How long, Lord, do we have to wait for this? And the Lord said, My word is coming. My word is coming from the house of David, the king. And she began again in a dirge-like tone. Jesus came on cold straw. Jesus was warmed by the breath of the ox of an ox who is this the world said who is this blue cold child and this woman plain as winter is this the word of God this blue cold child is this his will this plain winter woman listen you people she cried the world knew in its heart and the same as you and I know in your hearts and I know in my heart the world said love cuts like a cold wind and the will of God is as plain as the winter. Well, whatever that means, and I have no idea, it evokes, I think, a, what is it? It's truthy. <laughs> Isn't that right? Um, it just feels right. This blue cold child and this winter woman, the ordinariness of it all, the hardness, the coldness, I mean, it just the heaviness of the air comes down. And that does, it sets just right the proper, the scene of Christmas. What is Christmas? Behold, born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, where all the words, words start to pierce that hardness, that heaviness, and that coldness. And it begins to bring life where there is death and warmth where there is cold and a softness, a pliableness to the heart where there was nothing but stone. Born to you, you, this day, the particularity of it all, this day made new again every morning in the city of David. I've been doing this the whole time. A Savior who has got an identity. He's a person born of a woman, born under the law, Paul would say, is Christ the Lord, and his name is Jesus. He has a name. So it can evokes this wonderment with a lot of confusion and fear. Christmas is not easily apprehended. You don't just sort of say, oh yeah, I get it. <laughs> Christmas, that's easy. No, O'Connor, I think, approaches it and gets it with this strange sermon out of the mouth of an 11-year-old just like out of the womb of a 14-year-old, out of the mouth of an 11-year-old, 
this confusion, this wonderment, this fear, and yet you say, whatever she's saying, I'm buying. I think that's right. And so we hear uh, another hymn, which we'll sing this Saturday, um, Greensleeves, the great What Child Is This? Um, all of these came out of the Victorian part, by the way, right, right in 1865, 1867, something like that. A lot of our hymns, our great hymns do. And so we hear this succession from confusion to the particularity. This, this is Christ the King. And then the uh, uh, sort of the, the paradox again. Well, what does this mean if all this is true? And we hear this succession starting with the confusion. What child is this who laid to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping? Whom angels greet with anthems sweet while shepherds watch are keeping. It's like the disciples asking, even after they spent over a year with Jesus, and he calms the storm, you know, when he's exactly seven miles from here to here, and he's three and a half miles, and it's very specific, Mark says, and three and a half miles across, the waves got really big, and he stood up because he was asleep, and he said, peace, be still, and the wind and the seas and all else obeyed him, and their only response is, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Who is this? And we still have that wonderment and that confusion of what child is this? This blue cold child born from this winter woman breaking through this bleak midwinter. And then the answer comes with the particularity. It's another word to hang on to today. This, this is Christ the King whom shepherds guard and angels sing haste, haste to bring him Lord, the babe, the son of Mary. And then the implications begin to unfold, even wrapped in paradox upon paradox and paradox. Um, why lies he in such mean a state where ox and donkeys are feeding? If this, this is Christ the King, why is he there? Good Christians fear. For sinners here, the silent word is pleading. Nails, spears shall pierce him through the cross he bore for me for you hail hail the word made flesh the babe the son of mary if you've seen the apostle remember the 1997 something like that robert duvall movie it's worth looking at you know it's not really a good christmas movie there's a lot of good christmas scenes good christmas scene when i think it's the last scene before he goes to prison you know, he's given this sermon, and there's that baby that comes out. This is all on improv, by the way. Um, uh, he picks up a, an infant from the congregation, from this little Pentecostal church. He just takes it, and he picks him up, and he says, What kind of love do you have? What kind of love do you have? Could you love this baby enough that you would take his hands and put a nail right there and push it to a cross? I don't have that kind of love. But God does. You remember that part in that movie? Something like that? It's worth going back to. Nails, spears shall pierce him through. The cross he bore for me, for you. So if all this is true, this particularity of time that born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord, what is this day like for you? Um, uh, I don't know. Um, and it is my hope that this day is a good day. <laughs> Um, but for a lot of us, there's a heaviness to it. It's probably a both hand. Being really honest, it's a both hand. If, if your family, if you're doing well, that's great. 
but somebody you know and you love isn't doing so hot. And I have that burden. I have that burden for a lot of people. Um, I carry that both and around really seriously. And that's one reason I'm, I'm so into what I'm into, I think. Um, and this is kind of a, an encore. I wasn't planning on doing this, this hymn um, from Annie Lennox uh, in the bleak midwinter, but this is the one that people have remembered um, from last year, if I did it, maybe two years ago. Um, two or three of y'all, I don't know if it's y'all, um, but uh, somebody sent me a, a text uh, or, or texted me a picture in their car because in the bleak midwinter, Annie Lennox came up and said, this makes me think of you. I love this song now. Um, it's very humbling, by the way. I really appreciate that. But um, who, any, any Lennox, the Eurythmics, um, Here Comes the Rain Again and all that sort of stuff. She did a Christmas album a few years ago, uh, which is really good because she dives into some of the, the carols that aren't normal. And, and then even more than that, she takes some of the verses from those carols and puts those uh, into an arrangement. And she did that with Christina Rossetti's In the Bleak Midwinter. Yes, another song that we're going to be singing. So I'm trying to highlight that for you so you'll have a connection on Saturday. It is my very stated hope that you'll remember and somehow this will deepen your worship on Christmas Eve. Um, in the Bleak Midwinter, where she sets it up. I really don't like the third verse. I could do away with that one. It's a good one. It's kind of the little drummer's voice. The little drummer boy's verse. What can I give him, poor as I am? If I were a shepherd, I would bring a lamb. If I were a wise man, I would do my part. Um, and what's their last part? Um, yet what can I give him? Give him my heart. That's great. You know, I don't want to say against that. But it's the second verse that she's going to sing that I want to highlight. Because um, the first one goes, In the bleak midwinter, frosty wind made moan. Earth stood hard as iron, water like a stone. And so this is the 11-year-old preacher, the girl preacher, same hardness of the blue cold child and the wild and the winter woman, the plain winter woman. Snow had fallen, snow on snow in the bleak midwinter long, long ago. Well, that was then, but remember the particularity trying to bring, where's the bleak midwinter? The metaphor of the heart. I'm almost positive that's where this is. Of the bleak midwinter, those unevangelized continents, the, the parts of your heart which haven't yet been warmed or softened. Um, and then she lifts this with the arrangement to this place that's uh, truly remarkable. What is our ultimate end? It's not heaven. Remember, the heavens and the earth will both be remade, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Now, without going too far, Towards that, she holds the comings, the advents, the arrivals of Christ, both the silent word, the uneventful birth, and when he comes again in great glory where every knee shall bow and every tongue confess and say, yes, I can't help but know who that is. Time itself has stopped and the time of God has begun. Uh, and now there is uninterrupted fear, awe, and wonder before God. She captures all that. When she says, our God, heaven cannot hold him, nor earth sustain. Heaven and earth shall flee away because it all has to be made new uh, when he comes to reign. In the bleak midwinter, a stable place suffice. The Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. So with all that, let's hear it again. Do y'all know this hymn, this song by her? You're about to.
She goes on with the third verse, but for time, I think I'll move on. Um, I just, I'm in love with that arrangement because she sets it apart. Um, and I've looked, and I've downloaded probably 10 versions of that song, and I think only one other one, I can't remember who it was, it's like Jars of Clay or somebody random like that, even includes that verse about heaven and earth fleeing away. Most don't even have that in there. Um, but she sets it apart with a whole different arrangement where she lifts it above the bleak midwinter and hear the word break through. Something like, hark, the herald angels sing. This is Christmas. The silent word is now becoming audible. And the word is being made flesh. The incarnate deity has now been veiled. That which was invisible has put on flesh so we can see him and behold him. Born to you this day in the city of David, a baby, Christ the Lord. Flannery O'Connor, going back, the same sermon, the child continues with this idea of uh, heaven and earth fleeing away, the mountains lying down, as she will say. Listen, world, she cried, flinging up her arms, and the cape flew out behind her. Jesus is coming again. The mountains are going to lie down like hounds at his feet, and the stars are going to perch on his shoulder. And when he calls it, the sun is going to fall like a goose for the feast. Will you know the Lord Jesus then? The mountains will know him. They'll bound forward. The stars will light on his head, and the sun will drop down at his feet. But will you know the Lord then? If you don't know him now, you won't know him then. Listen to me, world. Listen to this warning. The holy word is in my mouth. The holy word is in my mouth. And then it goes on with Raber. It's a great part. You can pick it up and read it. And it's really, it's pretty good. So within all this, where are we pleading? Where, how do we turn? If I'm, if I'm doing anything to convey some of the bleak midwinter with the possibility, just the possible miraculous hope that something yet may come through. Where do we turn? We're not yet at the place. Of course, we're not yet there. The mountains haven't fallen down. The sun hasn't laid itself at Christ's feet. He hasn't come again to reign. So that the heavens and the earth have both flown, flew away uh, so that he would reign in uninterrupted majesty and glory. So where do we go? Perhaps, as Phillips Brooks, the great Episcopal bishop, uh, wrote, we might plead to the dark streets in Bethlehem itself, the great personification of uh, uh, O little town of Bethlehem, pleading to this city, hold this blue-cold child gently. Do you know what you're holding, Bethlehem? Which means house of bread, by the way. It's really interesting. The bread of life, do you know? What, what, what you're holding in your dark streets, and just hearing this, this urgency, this desperation in Phillips Brooks's uh, great meditation, his great hymn, O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Again, all of them have this, this idea of the bleak midwinter, the stillness of cold earth that just... You know, that just that's that's we've got to grapple with that first before we can feel the wonder of the Christmas word that for you a savior has come. Oh little town of Bethlehem, how still 
we see thee lie above thy deep and dreamless sleep. The silent stars go by, yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. Great phrase here. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. So God imparts to human hearts the blessings of his heaven. No ear may hear his coming, but in this world of sin, where meek souls will receive him still, the dear Christ enters in. I mean, it is an explosion. It is a silent explosion into the ordinary. Christmas. So with all that coming through, we're near to the place of heart, but not quite. Um, great phrase that speaks um, to uh, the writers like Flannery O'Connor or Truman Capote that was given to me years ago is a, uh, a Christ-haunted landscape that fits really well, I think, if you read these southern writers, these, these short stories especially, these meditations. They're Christ-haunted. They just You feel the weight, even if they're not explicitly a Christian word. The, uh, the ache of the, a midwinter's uh, mourning is felt on their pages. They're Christ-haunted. Uh, death is, is, uh, is usually a primary theme, a lot of disappointment, a lot of displacement. Um, and this is setting up Truman Capote's little meditation, A Christmas Memory. And this is the end um, of uh, very short. This is now in public access, I think, so you can just Google this if you don't know it. Um, Truman Capote is a child. You've got three characters here. You've got Truman Capote as a child. Um, he's probably eight years old or something like that. And he's is he in Monroeville. Where does he where did he grow up? Do you know? Is that right? Maybe I'm looking at Gretchen actually. So, but it could be could be Martin too. Somewhere down there. Okay, and so the old maid aunt who's going to be Buddy. No, that's what she called Truman. Um, I don't know if she's named in this. Sook. Um, uh, she's not married. She's got a twin sister who is married. She's just a little. She's just odd enough. This is the feeling you get that she never married, and that she's a good fit for the eight-year-old child, and they're inseparable. She's going to die. Um, death really hangs heavy here, um, and there's a dog named Queenie, who they're also so they're sort of a, a threesome in the good days, but Queenie also dies, and Truman Capote gets sent away. So that's a death in and of itself. It really hangs heavy, because here's Christmas, all the the hopes and ye- hopes and fears of all the years being met. Somehow our hearts just need events like Christmas, days like Christmas. You almost have to kind of warm up to it. You want to hurt, I do, to sort of have some sense of a release, of, of clarity of what's really true. Where, just where might there be truth and hope that something might break through? So Capote, who I don't think is a Christian necessarily, um, he writes definitely in that theme. So here's here's the end of his uh, Christmas memory. In his voice, um, looking back on his time, well, I'm disappointed. This is Christmas morning. They've just gotten their presents, and so he's saying this, but it's foreshadowing, obviously. Well, I'm disappointed. Who wouldn't be? With socks, a Sunday school shirt, some handkerchiefs, a hand-me-down sweater, 
and a year's subscription to a religious magazine for children. The Little Shepherd. It makes me boil. It really does. My friend, Sook, the old woman, has a better haul, a sack of satsumas, oranges. Um, that's her best present. She is proudest, however, of a white wool shawl knitted by her married sister. But she says her favorite gift is the kite I built her. And it is very beautiful, though not as beautiful as the one she made for me, which is blue and scattered with gold and green good conduct stars. Moreover, my name is painted on it, Buddy. Buddy, the wind is blowing. That's foreshadowing of death, but also the spirit and everything else. The wind is blowing, and nothing will do until we've run to the pasture below the house where Queenie is scooted to bury her bone, that's the dog, and where, a winter hence, Queenie will be buried too. And there, plunging through the healthy, waist-high grass, we unreal our kites, feel them twitching at the string like a skyfish as they swim into the wind. Satisfied, sun-warmed, we sprawl in the grass and peel satsumas and watch our kites cavort. Soon, I forget the socks and the hand-me-down sweater. I'm as happy as if we'd already won the $50,000 grand prize for that coffee naming contest. This is our last Christmas together. Life separates us. Those who know best decide that I belong in a military school. And so follows a miserable succession of bugle-blowing prisons, grim reveille, summer, grim reveille ridden summer camps. I have a new home, too, but it doesn't count. Home is where my friend is. And there I never go. And there she remains, puttering around the kitchen, alone with Queenie, Queenie, then alone. And in parentheses, Buddy dear, she writes in her wild, hard-to-read script, yesterday Jim Macy's horse kicked Queenie bad. Be careful, be thankful she didn't feel much. I wrapped her in a fine linen sheet and rode her in a buggy down to Simpson's pasture where she can be with all of her bones, close parentheses. For a few Novembers, she continues so continues to bake her fruitcakes single-handed. Not as many, but some. And of course, she always sends me the, quote, best of the batch. Also, in every letter, she encloses a dime and a toilet paper. See a picture show and write me the story. But gradually, her letters in her letters, she tends to confuse me with her other friend, the buddy who died in the 1880s. More and more 13ths are not the only days that she stays in bed. A morning arrives in November, a leafless, birdless coming of winter morning, when she cannot rouse herself to exclaim, Oh my, it's fruitcake weather. And when that happens, I know it. A message saying so merely confirms a piece of news some secret vein has already received, severing me from an irreplaceable part of myself, letting it loose like a kite on a broken string. That is why, walking across a school campus on this particular December morning, I keep searching the sky, as if I expected to see, rather like hearts, a pair of kites hurrying towards heaven. I mean, it's beautiful. It's painful. It's true. Um, but it sets up the glory of Christmas. Last part, W.H. Auden put it like this, and the word is jarring. He uses the word demand. We can demand something, like put our foot down and this is the way it's going to be. Or it can be a demand, double entendre again, Christmas is wrapped in a paradox upon a paradox, of I have nothing else. And if there's going to be any hope at all here, this is what is demanded. 
the situation demands a miracle. In Auden's Christmas Oratorio, he says this. It's the pilgrim way. This is our wandering. Like Cain wandering uh, after he killed Abel for years and years and years. The pilgrim way has led to the abyss. Was it to meet such grinning evidence that we left our richly odored ignorance? Was the triumph? What's the triumph? Maybe our autonomy from God, our self-determination, whatever it is, our freedom. Was it a triumph? To answer? Was the triumph answer to be this? The pilgrim way has led to the abyss. And then his great memorable phrase, we who must die demand a miracle. How could the eternal do a temporal act? The infinite become a finite fact. Nothing can save us that is possible. We who must die demand a miracle. And finally, Christmas has come. Frank Limehouse tells me this story. I have to give credit to him. I wish I could say this was mine. It's not. It's him. He, as pastors sometimes have to do, was called to the hospital on a Christmas morning. Some of y'all remember this story. It's a great story. It's a car wreck or something else like that, or maybe it's a mother who's dying in ICU. Whatever it is, there's a death, and it's going to happen, and it's Christmas. It's not supposed to be this way, right? Um, and so the the somewhat uh, hardened, the bleak midwintered children, probably not too close to church, but the parent who's dying is, they say, well, what about it, church man? You going to have a word for us? It's Christmas, right? All the sarcasm dripping didn't mean, didn't lose... Uh, it wasn't lost on Frank for a moment. Without missing a beat, Frank was given, he would say that too, he was given a word, and that's where he said to the question, what about it, church man? You have a word for us this morning? Something for Christmas? It's Christmas, right? Didn't blink. And Frank said, behold, born to you this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's the only word. It's the only word. And now Charles Wesley wrote the hymn that we'll walk out to. Hark, the herald angels sing. Finally, good news. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth, mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Joyful, all ye nations rise. Join the triumph of the skies. With the angelic host proclaim, Christ is born in Bethlehem. Hark. The herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, Christ, by highest heaven adored, Christ, the everlasting Lord. Late in time, behold him come, means particular, offspring of a virgin's womb, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased with us in flesh to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel, hail the heaven, born prince of peace, hail the Son of Righteousness, light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings, mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. So if you wanted a homework assignment, it's to go home and, uh, and, 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 and pull up the, uh, the Peanuts Christmas, Charlie Brown's Christmas. You know, Linus with a security blanket and all that stuff. I can't speak as an authority on, on, on peanuts, but I'll bet he doesn't drop his blanket often. But he does. When Charlie Brown says, doesn't anybody know what Christmas is all about? 
And Linus comes out, I do, Charlie Brown. Lights, please. And he starts reciting what I read earlier. You know, in the days of Caesar Augustus, when Quirinia was a governor in Syria. And when he gets to the part, and lo, he drops the blanket. For now a word which can save, now a word which secures him to his maker, that all things and all manner of things shall be well. He tells us, Christmas is, behold, born to you, to you and to all who you love this day, a Savior, Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord, take this word, fragile and ordinary and powerless and vulnerable as it is, and, and, and let it ride on the, the wings of your gospel, your good word to us and for us, and give courage where it is sorely needed, and let fearful hearts rest in the news of Christmas, that behold, this day for me, for my friends, a Savior is born. Uh, come, Lord, let it be, for it is in your name, in Jesus' name, that we pray. Amen. Amen.